Welcome back, everybody. We have a sponsor for today's podcast, International Medical Industries, IMI. They are an American medical device manufacturer specializing in devices that enhance the safety of medication from the pharmacy to the patient. Today's guest for Drug Diversion Insights is Antoinette Brown. Antoinette is the coordinator for experiential education at the University of Wyoming School of Pharmacy. And I wanna hear all about that and what the program entails. So we're gonna talk about that. But Antoinette is also a patient. She was a patient at the time of Kristen Parker when Kristen was diverting. And Antoinette was on the list of patients the hospital had to follow up with. And she's gonna share that experience with us today. Welcome, Antoinette. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with a bit of your history. You are a fellow pharmacist. So tell us where you've practiced in your career. How did you end up at the university? And what is experiential education? All right. Well, I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's kind of been a full circle life, um, lifetime cycle in my career. I actually graduated from the University of Wyoming School of Pharmacy um, with a Bachelor of Science degree in pharmacy back in 1992. And um, right after graduation, I worked for about 10 years as a retail pharmacist. And during that time, I also owned my own pharmacy. And then um, from there, I moved on to the Wyoming Department of Health, where I became the Medicaid Pharmacy Program Manager. And then I had the wonderful opportunity to get to come back to the University of Wyoming School of Pharmacy and take my current position, which is the coordinator of experiential education. And I have been in that role for the past 10 years. And with that, I get what I, I, I get to do what I love probably the most is working with students and future pharmacists. Um, I help them prepare for their, their fourth and final year of their um, experiential education practicums, prepare them for that, and then I kind of um, shepherd them through that final year of pharmacy school. I, um, we, they come back to campus three times a year, and so we, you know, we have capstone presentations the students do. We have great guest speakers such as yourself that come in, and, you know, educate them about things that they may not have learned in their didactic classroom education. So um, it's really just kind of fun to see them grow and develop into these competent, smart professionals. Um, and so I love my job and, um, and yeah, and it brought me to you. So that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, one, it's great to hear that you love your job. Um, some people aren't happy, right, with what they do, but I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you love your job. And yes, you bring in speakers, and so I did go in and speak with them on diversion. That's a topic that I don't think is really covered much in most universities. And so given that opportunity to kind of share and to educate them a little bit about diversion being a thing and what it looks like and that the pharmacy really has a role in watching for that. So every pharmacist needs to be aware of it. So that's all part of it. So thank you for having given me that opportunity. Okay, so let's jump into your experience as a possible diversion victim. 
Now, for those of you that are not familiar with Kristen Parker, let me give you a little bit of background. Kristen was a surgical tech who worked in Colorado back in 2008. She was first, when she was hired, her pre-employment screening indicated that she might have hepatitis C and she was made aware of that, but she didn't do any follow-up. So I think you, uh, those of you that haven't heard of her can kind of guess where this is going. She had a substance use disorder and she went on to infect at least 18 patients with hepatitis C because her method of diversion was substitution and leaving dirty needles on syringes. According to the facts of the case, several patients also woke up in pain because they had not received their fentanyl. She would swap out the fentanyl syringes for water or saline, syringes that she found lying around in the procedural rooms. And, you know, hospitals don't typically give their surgical techs access to the automated dispensing machine. So she didn't have the access, but she still found a way to get her hands on multiple syringes that were left unattended. This is why it is so important in the procedural rooms that everyone takes real ownership for the meds that they have dispensed and are administering so that others do not gain access. I have been in a room observing actually from outside the room when a medical device representative was in the back of the room right by the meds that were on the table and nobody had eyes on him or the meds. In that case, I did for that particular case, but normally nobody would have had eyes on him because everybody was facing, facing the bedside. So you really need to be mindful of, of what is going on in your procedural rooms. Kristen ended up being sentenced to 30 years. That is typically a longer, it's a longer sentence than what you would expect. The judge that sentenced her said that her actions were incomprehensible and unconscionable. Ms. Parker didn't just quit, she got caught. Addiction explains, but never excuses. Yes, Kristen Parker owns much of the blame, but several victims also blame the hospital. They stated that the hospital was negligent and that those meds should never have been accessible to her. I don't believe the hospital suffered any legal consequences for the case. And I also believe that had this case happened today, they probably would have, because we have seen more and more hospitals being held responsible for diversion and harm to patients or employees. So this is a really good reminder that all facilities need to take ownership for their controlled substance security throughout the whole continuum of care. Now, Antoinette, you were a surgical patient at that hospital at the time, and you got the call. So share with us what that was like. How did the hospital reach out to you? How did they rule out an infection? And what were all of the emotions that uh, you went through, through that journey? Sure, yes, I um, was at the hospital um, in December of 2008 for some um, breast cancer uh, surgery and in, in the beginning of reconstruction. And so I was already kind of at a heightened level of just nervousness, you know, anxiety as anyone would be if, if they, you know, they're suffering an illness. And so, um, but everything went great. You know, my surgery went great and, you know, I, I actually had a very good experience. Um, and then it was, you know, that was in December and 
the beginning of the summer, so in 2009, I received a letter uh, from Rose Medical Center saying that there had been a potential exposure to um, the hepatitis C virus and that I would need to be tested and that they would pay for the, the testing and that I had to find a, you know, one of their, their the approved labs in the area. And so, um, and, you know, I had to make an appointment, go down um, and get testing. You know, they would cover the cost and then they would let me know um, the results. And so, being in Cheyenne, Wyoming, you know, I had to travel down into Colorado again to, to do the testing. And, you know, just during that whole time, you're just, I guess, being a healthcare professional, you know, I knew what hepatitis C was, you know, I knew the consequences of, you know, having that infection. You know, and at the time we didn't have the medications we do now to uh, treat the disease. So, um, of course, a lot of nervousness and anxiety around that and kind of like, oh, you know, I've, I've gotten through one hurdle and this was a completely unexpected hurdle um, in my breast cancer journey. But um, I did go down. I, I, I received the testing and, you know, fortunately, I was not one of those who was infected. But um, the one thing that Rose did do was provide... Um, links and resources so that you know patients could follow the case and i will have to say i watched it quite quite closely from two perspectives one is just feeling very compassionate towards towards those patients who were infected um, and then also just because of my pharmaceutical background and i have a very um, very strong interest in um, substance use and opioid use disorder, just kind of watching the case, you know, from the patient's perspective of, you know, what happened and, and how did, you know, how did it come, how did it get to this level? And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was a, a lot of, it was an emotional roller coaster during, during that time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you said something I didn't really think about is that we didn't have the medications then that, that we have now. Um, so that would have could have made you know a world of difference to some of the the victims that did come out positive, but I hadn't really thought about that from you know a time perspective as to when things came out. So that makes it even even scarier. Um, and you know the hospital sent out a letter, which I guess you can't necessarily expect a phone call, which I think would have been. A better process, but depending on how many people they need to notify, I mean that's not really the letter that you you want to get in the mail, right? So that that's a shout out to every hospital. They need to know how to get a hold of patients and and what their process is going to be should they have an, an incident. You also said that you took a particular interest in substance use disorder, and you had shared with me previously that you in your career, you had seen, I think, one or maybe two people that did have an SUD that either you realized at the time or maybe didn't realize at the time, but looking back, you did. Is there anything that you can share on, on that with us? Well, you know, um, you know I, I did work with a couple of pharmacists who really probably at the the time I suspected, but didn't know for sure that, you know, they, they did have a substance use disorder. And and I guess, you know, 
in hindsight, I probably a little bit of denial, just thinking that, you know, surely somebody with, you know, the, the understanding of medications that a pharmacist would, you know, would, would not, you know, use substances um, inappropriately. But, you know, I've long since learned that, you know, substance use disorder, it's a disease, you know, much, you know, like diabetes or any other, you know, diseases that we treat. And so, and then also just working in community pharmacy, which I did for many years, you know, you, you do see a lot of patients come through with a substance use disorder. And, and, you know, kind of, I guess, maybe the initial response to those patients is, you know, frustration, exasperation. Um, but, but over the years, I also, you know, came to know a lot of those patients just as people and, and realized that, you know, this, this is a dis disorder and, you know, it's, we, we need to be, try to be as compassionate and, you know, and caring and, and helpful to these patients as possible. And so really it was kind of a, you know, multiple paths that led me to the, to the desire to learn more about substance use disorder. And then of course, with the opioid use disorder, you know, that whole crisis with opioids, you know, I was, Part of that time when that was happening, I was a community pharmacist, and the other part of the time I was you know, more on the the payer end of, of prescriptions. And so, um, you know, I just it really opened my eyes to how complicated you know these these disorders are, and you know how costly they are, and impactful they are to not only the person who suffers from this disorder, but from the people around them and, and having this particular situation with, you know, being a patient at Rose and, you know, potentially having this exposure to, you know, hepatitis C because of a person who had a substance use disorder. I mean, it just came for me at so many different angles that I just, you know, kind of just, I couldn't avoid not being interested in it and wanting to help educate people about uh, substance use disorder and opioid use disorder and kind of help be part of the, the the cure and the solution to the problem. Yeah, you said all that very, very well. I cannot imagine. I, I spent a little bit of time in community pharmacy, but most of my career has been in hospital. But, um, and I will say, I don't, yeah, early on when I was in community, I did not encounter anybody that had a substance use disorder coming into my pharmacy, I guess I can be thankful for that, didn't experience it at all. A little bit of experience later on. In fact, I uh, even, you know, went so far as to call the, the physician's office, you know, is this patient yours? Is this what you, you know, <laughs> I was working per diem for that retail pharmacy and, and I didn't do very many shifts after that. <laughs> um, but I guess I took it too seriously for them maybe, but um, I can imagine that that is very draining working in a community hospital, especially if you're trying to stay compassionate, but yet you know exactly what's going on and you, you feel for them, but then there's the payer issue and there's just so many things involved. Um, so I think you summarized it all very well. And, and also the fact that as you're looking at these pharmacists, that there's something going on, you know it. And as you said, hindsight, you know, you were probably ignoring some things, but I do think the first thing that comes into mind is surely not. 
not as a healthcare professional, you know what these medications do and don't you know to get help, right? You should recognize it and then go get help quickly. And that's where the disease comes in. They just are, are not thinking straight anymore like you or I would be thinking as pharmacists and healthcare professionals. And that is what we need to remember as we see people through our journey that they are not thinking straight. So to think surely not, you know, that doesn't make sense for them. And, and we need to assist that and get them help. During Kristen's trial, I don't know how much they had. Uh, was it live? Was the whole thing live that they, or was it more news clippings that you were looking at? So I mostly got, um, yeah, like updates. Um, and not, I did never watch the trial, but I would receive regular updates on, on, you know, how, it, how it progressed on. through the, yeah. the legal system. Yeah. The progress. Well, during the trial, Kristen had said, I know everyone is waiting for me to answer the million dollar question. Why? I won't sugarcoat it. I was a drug addict. So she recognized that and that's what what the whole problem was. Kristen's parents asked that the victims not hate their daughter and stated that had they known about her addiction, they would have spent the money to get her help. They would have spent the money getting her help rather than for the lawyer's fees. Well, this is a lesson learned. Everybody out there, review your processes, make sure all your areas are at all times secure and staff understand what controlled substance security looks like. And if someone is suspected of having a substance use disorder, don't enable them. It does not serve anyone well to ignore a possible problem. Our expert diversion solutions offers many services that can assist. And if you'd like a consultation, just reach out and we're, we're happy to talk to you and see how we can partner with you. Thank you, Antoinette, for your time today. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we end our time? No, just thank you for you know giving me this opportunity to talk a little bit more about um, you know substance use, opioid use disorders, and and bring more awareness you know in, to people about um, about the impact it can have. Absolutely. Well, thank you for taking an interest and thank you for what you do with your future pharmacists, your students that um, you are exposing to all of these different things. That's that's a great thing that you're doing and mentoring them. Thank you. Learn more about IMI at imiweb.com where you can see their complete line of innovative tamper evident products including their industry-leading PrepLock line of tamper-evident caps, which are an effective deterrent to diversion. Thank you, everybody, for listening.